0: Let's turn in God's Word to Psalm 11, and then we'll read Psalm 12 as well. Psalm 11 to the chief musician, a psalm of David. In the Lord put I my trust. How say ye to my soul? Flee as a bird to your mountain, for lo, the wicked bend their bow, they make ready their arrow upon the string, that they may privily shoot at the upright in heart. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple, the Lord's throne is in heaven, his eyes behold His eyelids try the children of men. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence his soul hateth. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire, and brimstone, and an horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. His countenance doth behold righteousness the upright. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceaseth, for the faithful fail from among the children of men. They speak vanity, every one with his neighbor, with flattering lips and with a double heart do they speak. The Lord shall cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaketh proud things, who have said with our tongue, Will we prevail? Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now will I arise, saith the Lord. I will set him in safety from him that puffeth at him. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, Purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. The wicked walk on every side when the vilest men are exalted. Thus far we read God's holy and inerrant word. May God add his blessing upon the reading of his holy scriptures. It's on the basis of these psalms and many other passages of the Holy Scriptures that we find the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 6. Question 16, why must he, referring to the mediator and deliverer, spoken of in previous question, why must he be very man and also perfectly righteous? Because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which hath sinned should likewise make satisfaction for sin. And one who is himself a sinner cannot satisfy for others. Why must he in one person be also very God? That he might, by the power of his Godhead, sustain in his human nature the burden of God's wrath, and might obtain for and restore to us righteousness and life. Who then is that mediator, who is in one person both very God and a real righteous man? Our Lord Jesus Christ who of God is made unto us wisdom, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Whence knowest thou this from the Holy Gospel, which God himself first revealed in paradise, and afterwards published by the patriarchs and prophets, and represented by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law, and lastly hast fulfilled it, by His only begotten Son. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Heidelberg Catechism has been progressing methodically and some would even charge slowly to the point of revealing unto us who is our mediator and deliverer the catechism by no means has been hasty in revealing unto us the identity and name of our deliverer started out in lord's day 2 in teaching us about our sin and our misery which is known out of the law of God. It revealed unto us the extent of our sinfulness that we are, according to question 5, prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. The catechism then addressed the question of who is to blame for this sin? sinfulness? Is it God's fault? Did God create man so wicked and perverse? Then after establishing in Lord's Day 3 that it's not God's fault, but that man is the one who fell into sin, then in Lord's Day 4, the catechism faced the question of, is there an escape from the justice and the punishment of God? Could it be that God simply sets aside His justice, or that God, according to His mercy, cancels out His justice, and thus there is no punishment for sin. Lord's Day 5, which is the first Lord's Day in the second section of the Catechism, which reveals unto us our deliverance. Still does not yet mention the name of our deliverer. It speaks generally of his character. Lord's Day 5, question 15: What sort of a mediator and deliverer then must we seek for? But it doesn't tell us who he is. And so even as an impatient child, eager to take off on a trip, implores the family to hurry up, let's get going. So at this point, the student of the catechism might be inclined to implore of the catechism, hurry up. Bring us to know our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And in Lord's Day 6, the writers of the Catechism bring us to the instruction about Christ. At last, he is mentioned by name. Question 18. Who, then, is that mediator? who is in one person both very God and a real righteous man, the answer, our Lord Jesus Christ, known from the Gospel. And so we consider Lord's Day 6 this morning under the theme, Knowing Your Deliverer. First, the Lord Jesus Christ will look at His identity and what that means for you me. Second, we'll consider where we know Him, revealed in the Gospel. Third, we will see that He is made to be your wisdom, according to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. Knowing your Deliverer, the Lord Jesus Christ, revealed in the Gospel, made your wisdom. Who is, beloved congregation, your Deliverer? Who is the one who gives unto you your Deliverer? What this Lord's Day makes abundantly clear, the, the point it drives home, and I pray that it will drive this point home to your heart and to mine this morning, is that God alone is capable and willing to provide your Deliverer. God alone. Why do we say that God alone is able to provide your Deliverer? Well, because of who He is, as He's described here in the Catechism. Who is your Deliverer? He is, according to question 16, very man and also perfectly Righteous. Why must he be very man and also perfectly righteous? And already at that point there, we see the human inability to provide such a deliverer. For no human being is capable of being perfectly righteous. Consider with me briefly who your deliverer is. He is a real and a complete and a sinless human being. Real, complete, sinless human being. In order for Jesus Christ to be the one who would make satisfaction for your sins, it's necessary that He be a real human being. He could not be as some cults, would claim that he is simply appearing like a human being. Simply putting on an appearance while he was on this earth of being a human being. Simply behaving like a human being, but not actually in flesh and blood being a real person. But instead, the mediator must be born of a woman. The mediator must be able to trace his lineage back to Adam and Eve. The mediator must be of the royal lineage of David. Your deliverer must be, according to Ephesians 5, verse 30, bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. A real human being who is your deliverer, He is a complete human being. And when we testify that Jesus Christ is a complete human being, what we mean, beloved, is that when Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary there in Bethlehem, it was not the case that Jesus only was a human being with regard to His body, but rather when Jesus Christ was born there in Bethlehem, He not only had a human body, but He also had a human mind, a human will, a human heart, and human desires. We must not conceive of Jesus Christ as like somebody who on the inside was God, but who then on the outside was a human being, that he's half God and half human being. So that then the Jesus that interacted with the disciples, the Jesus that broke bread and ate of it, the Jesus that walked around performing miracles, that Jesus was Jesus in His human nature, but then the Jesus that was, as it were, hidden from view, the, the the aspect of Jesus that the disciples could not see His heart and His mind and His will, that that aspect of Jesus was divine. That's not how we must conceive or understand of Jesus Christ, but rather our confession is that Jesus Christ was fully human. Not just on the outside with regard to His flesh, but on the inside. Jesus Christ was a a real human. It was possible for Jesus Christ as a human being to be tempted in all points like as we are. It was possible for Jesus Christ as a human being to be hurt. To suffer from loneliness, discouragement, despondency. It was necessary for Jesus Christ as a real human being at times to escape from the crowds and to go out into the mountains and there in the quietness of solitude pray to His Father who was and is in heaven. He was a real and a complete human being. Now, who could provide such a deliverer? Perhaps at this point you think to yourself, well, that describes everybody on this earth. We all have a real and a complete Human nature. And so there is nothing unique or exceptional about this description of the deliverer thus far. But then, where does the catechism just go? He must be very man and also perfectly righteous. A real, a complete and a sinless human being. And it is exactly at that point that you behold, beloved, the impossibility of you contributing one bit to your salvation. For who of us could be a real, a complete, and a sinless human being? Being. The underlying thought here of the Catechism is that if Jesus Christ had any sins of his own, then he would not be a qualified substitute for anyone else. He could not offer himself up upon that cross to die for your and my sins if Jesus Christ had a single offense that he had committed against God. For then it would be necessary of Christ that first he make satisfaction for his own sins, before he would be qualified to make satisfaction for the sins of others. How impossible that we provide such a mediator. And then the catechism goes on in describing Him, who is your Deliverer, He's not just man, but He's God. Question 17, why must He in one person be also very God, that He might by the power of His Godhead sustain in His human nature the burden of God's wrath? and might obtain for and restore to us righteousness and life. And the thought here of the catechism is that anyone who is a mere creature does not have the strength to bear up under the indescribable weight of the wrath and anger of God against the sins of mankind. And so if a mere creature is incapable of bearing the wrath of God, then the only other possibility is that God Himself bears up under the weight of His own wrath. And so we must not at this point, beloved, make the mistake of conceiving of the mediator as one who stands as a third party, who reaches out and takes these two parties who are at an impasse, God and man, and tries to move God closer to man and man closer to God. That's not what our mediator Jesus Christ does. It's not as if Jesus Christ is this third party counselor. And that because we are at an impasse with God, that then we reach out to Jesus Christ and we ask Jesus Christ to mediate in between us, to draw God closer to us and to draw us closer to God. And that perhaps halfway in the middle, we can both make some compromises, we can both come together, and then we can meet there at the middle point. That is not at all, beloved, the description of the Mediator given in the Catechism or of the Holy Scriptures. But rather, the idea of the Mediator is this, that the Mediator Himself is God. There's no third party here. But God Himself reaches down into the vanity of this earth, sends His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, into the filth and mire of the sin-cursed creation. And God Himself, through His Son, Jesus Christ, took upon Himself the sins and the curse which is due unto us for those sins. And God Himself mediated by having His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, go to the point of death. It is not, beloved, that man and God cooperate and come together and as a result of joint effort, mediate and are delivered out of this problem. But God reaches down to this earth in His love and grace, and God lifts us up out of that pit into which we willingly plunged ourselves. That, beloved, is your deliverer. Jesus. A real, a complete, a sinless human who at the same time was very God. And when one has this knowledge and this understanding of who the Mediator is and of what He has done for us, then you can understand, beloved, that there is no room in the heart of man for any pride whatsoever. Pride. A sin against which every one of us must fight. Pride. Listed by Pope Gregory the Great, leader of the Roman Catholic Church in the 6th century, as the first of seven deadly sins pride, something that is universally recognized by Christians as being a root sin, a sin that leads to other vices, and yet a sin that of ourselves is so difficult, yea, impossible to root out. Pride, what is it? To be proud is to have an inflated view of oneself, of one's importance, of one's attractiveness or desirability to others. Pride, it is having too high of thoughts of who I am and of the place and position that I occupy upon this earth. There can be pride on an individual level, where the individual, as he reflects on himself or she reflects on herself, judges to be greater than what he or she actually is. There can be pride on a corporate level, whereas as a body, a family, Congregation, a denomination, a business. We judge ourselves to be greater than what we actually are. The difficult thing about pride, beloved, is this it is easier to spot pride in others than it is to be able to than it is able to see pride in ourselves. David had this ability. He could see pride in others. He saw it in his enemies. And he speaks of it here in Psalm twelve. Psalm twelve verses one through three Help, Lord, for the godly man ceaseth For the faithful fail from among the children of men. They speak vanity. Every one with his neighbor, with flattering lips, and with a double heart do they speak. The Lord shall cut off all flattering lips, and the tongue that speaketh proud things. David was given the discernment to see that pride was what motivated the wicked to rise up against God. That pride compelled the wicked to have double speech, vain thoughts, a flattering tongue. And yet this same individual, David, who was so keen and perceptive that he could see from a mile away pride in the enemies of God's church, was at a different time in history, unable to see the sin of pride in himself. Recall when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then murdered her husband and did not repent for a long time following that. And then God sent Nathan the prophet to David. And Nathan said unto David, Thou art the man. And it was not until David was confronted with the word of God that then finally David was given the ability to see the sin of pride, not just in the lives of others, but to see the sin of pride in his own heart. That had compelled him to go out and commit such horrific deeds. That's the difficulty about pride. One can sit as a member of a congregation and observe the other members of the church and with very good clarity observe moments of weakness and even pride that rises up in others. But is one able to see the sin of pride in his or her own heart understanding the struggle that we as christians have against pride and how how deadly this sin is how then do we fight against it how do i even see the sin of pride in My own life. The starting point, beloved, for seeing the sin of pride in your life and for me to see the sin of pride in my life. Have one's mind filled with the knowledge of God. The more I know God, and what God has done for me through His Son, Jesus Christ. The more God peels back the layers in my own life, takes the blinders off of my eyes, so that you and I can see the sin of pride in our own lives. It is when man either does not know God, or when man has too low of thoughts of God, that then man in turn thinks too highly of himself. But filled with the knowledge of God, beloved, there is no room for boasting. The instruction of this Lord's Day, Lord's Day 6, makes abundantly clear to you and to me that the only one who is capable and who is willing to provide a deliverer, to rescue you from that pit into which you have fallen, is God. And what have you contributed to that salvation? What have you offered? Did you assist Jesus Christ there at the cross? Did you prop Him up when He drank that cup of God's wrath? Did you encourage Jesus Christ to be faithful? Did you even want Jesus Christ? The answer, beloved, is we didn't. And we don't. By nature. We don't even want this type of deliverer. He's too holy, too pure for you and for me. But the love of God is this, that even though He knows our frame and remembers that we are dust, even though His eyes are open and His eyelids try the thoughts of men, Yet God, in love for us, sent this deliverer into our lives. And the more we know of this gracious deliverance that God has given to us, the more we will detest in our own hearts and souls that vice of pride. How then do we know this deliverer? Through the gospel? To the gospel. That's question and answer nineteen. Whence knowest thou this? The answer from the holy gospel, which God Himself first revealed in paradise. The answer here that the Catechism gives is so much striking. The Catechism does not say, "How do you know this Deliverer by the Scriptures?" That's what we almost would anticipate that the catechism would say here. How do I know Jesus Christ? Well, I know Jesus Christ because the Scriptures reveal Him unto us. But it doesn't. It says that we know Jesus Christ through the Gospel. And it was wise of the writers of the catechism to say that it's through the Gospel that we know Jesus Christ because, beloved, this is includes then, and this unites us with, the saints of the Old Testament. If the answer would simply have said, through the Scriptures, we know our mediator and our deliverer, then how would Adam and Eve, who did not yet have the Scriptures, know the mediator? How would Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob know him, follow him, Walk by faith in Him. Before God gave unto His church the whole and incomplete canon of the Scriptures, God had already given unto His church the Gospel. God came to Adam and Eve in the garden with that mother promise. Genesis 3, verse 15. God came to Abraham with that promise of the Gospel, telling Abraham that He would establish a covenant with him and with the children that would come forth from him. And so, throughout the Old Testament Scriptures, before they had yet the canon of the Word of God, God had delivered unto them the Gospel. And so we, with the Old Testament saints, together, are given to know our blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, through the Gospel. What is the Gospel? It's the good news. It is the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. The Gospel is the message that Jesus Christ alone saves sinners from their sins. The Gospel is not that Jesus Christ needs man's assistance, that Jesus Christ needs man's cooperation, or that Jesus Christ depends upon man's permission to save man from his sins. What is the Gospel? The Gospel is that Jesus Christ saves His people from their sins. That is, His elect Children chosen by the Father in love from before the foundations of the world. The Gospel is not the Arminian message that Jesus would desire to save everybody and that this good news is available for everybody head for head across the face of this earth if only you will reach out and grab a hold of this Gospel which is offered unto you. But the gospel is that Jesus Christ will save his people from their sins. Who needs to hear this gospel? This gospel is for broken and for fallen sinners. I came not, Jesus said to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The kingdom of God is not composed of individuals who have succeeded by their own strength. But the kingdom consists of people who recognize and confess their own inability to succeed. The psalmist in Psalm 11 confessed his dependence upon God. Psalm 11, verse 1, In the Lord Jehovah put I my trust. And again, the next psalm, Psalm 12, verse 1, Help, Lord, for the godly man ceaseth, for the faithful fail from among the children of God. Of men. Who is the gospel for? The gospel is for broken, fallen, penitent sinners. For those who are pricked in their own heart and soul for their sins. For the person who has no remorse over his sins for the person who stubbornly persists in sins, even the sin of pride and haughtiness of heart, for the person who refuses to receive instruction from the Word of God. There is no application of the gospel of that individual. For the, gospel is for the Gospel is for the one who cries out to the Lord with tears day and night, confessing one's brokenness and one's inability to stand even for a man. How wonderful it is, beloved, that God is the One who gives unto us this Gospel. From where does the Gospel Come, who is the one who gives unto us this gospel, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ? Question 19: Whence knowest thou this from the Holy Gospel which God himself first revealed in paradise? This is such an important question of who is the one who is going to give the gospel? Who is going to be the one who is going to publish abroad that good news? Businessmen understand the importance of publicity. A businessman might have worked to develop a very good product. He might have spent a lot of time, money, energy on research and development... So the product that this businessman is coming out with is a product that he is convinced will serve for the betterment of those who use that product. But, if that businessman does not market, publicize that product, good though it might be, that product will not be of any use to anyone Because no one will know about it. And so the businessman invests, not just in the development of the product, but he invests as well in the marketing and the promotion and the publicizing of this product so that others as well might be convinced, yes, this is something that would be a benefit to me in my life who now is going to be the one who is going to publicize the gospel? If we might compare it unto the product on the shelves, we would say that there is no product more valuable in this whole world. There is nothing on this earth that is going to have a greater impact on the lives of the citizens of this earth than the gospel. Having the gospel brought unto an individual will transform that individual as the Spirit presses that gospel upon their heart. So then the question is, who is going to do the work, as it were, of marketing, of of publishing this gospel? Who is going to take this good news and deliver the good news unto God's children? And the answer, beloved, is God Himself. From the Holy Gospel, which God Himself first revealed in paradise. And afterwards, God Himself, we can insert, published by the patriarchs and prophets. And God Himself represented by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. And lastly, God Himself has fulfilled the Gospel by His only begotten Son. How appropriate then that God Himself, who is the One who made the Gospel through His Son, Jesus Christ, be the One then who publishes this Gospel. God is the One who by His Holy Spirit sends forth His Word. And the Spirit then is the one who takes that Word of God and presses that Word upon the hearts of God's own children. And so where then is there room for boasting on behalf of man? It is excluded, for God publishes His own Gospel. Psalm 12, verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. What's the power of this word of the Lord? Verse 7, Thou shalt keep them. The word keeps. God's children. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. And as God gives unto us this Gospel, God, through Jesus Christ, makes us who were foolish to become wise. Who then is that mediator who is in one person both very God and a real righteous man, our Lord Jesus Christ, who of God is made unto us wisdom. How we need Jesus Christ, who is made of God unto us to be wisdom. The Word of God reveals unto us our foolishness by nature. Foolishness is naturally found in each one of us, even the youngest of our children is foolish. Proverbs 22, verse 15, Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. What is the effect of foolishness? Arrogant, haughty, foolishness. Foolishness foolishness leads to pain, suffering, and hurt. Psalm 38, verse 5, My wounds stink and are corrupt because of my foolishness. How arrogant is foolishness? So arrogant it is that foolishness asserts that there is no divine transcendent being who answers to no one. Psalm 14, verse 1, The fool has said in his heart, There is No God. Foolishness renders one blind. Unable even to see what is good. But foolishness instead makes the individual hate what is good. Even the preaching of the cross... First Corinthians 1, verse 18, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. How amazing, then, is the love of God that God gives unto us this mediator, this deliverer, who is made unto us wisdom. Observe with me how Jesus Christ transforms us, making us to be wise. It is true, Proverbs 22, verse 15, that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but, the Word of God goes on, the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. It is true that the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But, the Word of God goes on, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. May God take our haughty foolishness found by nature in our hearts. And by the power of the gospel, displace that foolishness with thankful, humble, loving, lifelong service to Him. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father and our God in heaven, we thank Thee that Thou dost reveal unto us the Gospel, first given to our parents Adam and Eve in the garden, later published abroad by the prophets, and lastly, Thou hast fulfilled it through the death of Thy Son, Jesus Christ. May Jesus Christ be made unto us our wisdom, our sanctification, and our righteousness. May His Spirit dwell in us and strengthen us. Will Thou pardon our sins for His sake? Amen.